Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. As the current discussion around the hot topic of chat GPT evidences, legal technology is constantly evolving and developing. This results in a level of complexity and confusion for both legal organizations and tech companies as they try to stay competitive. One of the people helping them navigate these waters is Zach Abramowitz, founder of Killer Whale Strategies. A former M&A attorney, Zach founded the company in 2019 with the goals of facilitating connections between law firms and tech companies and assisting with their strategic decisions and investments. Zach's interest in legal tech goes beyond his work at Killer Whale Strategies, however. He's an advisory board member at Legal Mation, and he frequently blogs about the impact of technology on the legal industry. I caught up with Zach at his office in Tel Aviv. In our conversation, Zach talks about maintaining professional relationships through virtual meetings, what he looks for in clients and investment opportunities, and his thoughts on the potential impact of generative AI on the legal industry. It was an entertaining conversation. I got a lot out of it, and I hope you do as well. Thank you for listening. Hey, Zach. Welcome to the show. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too, and uh, great to be here, Stephen. Thanks for making the time. I look forward to the conversation. Where uh, where in the world am I finding you? So I have an office that's just outside of Tel Aviv, so I'm you know hop, skip, and a jump from where you are. <laughs> uh, the beauty of uh, technology, right? We can. It's like it's like we're next to each other. Exactly, and I always joke when, when people hear that uh, that answer, they're a little bit surprised, and I say, "You can't tell from my very thick Middle Eastern accent." <laughs> I have to admit, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have guessed Tel Aviv when you said that's where we're talking from. What time is it there? It is six o'clock in the evening here. Okay, so we're not inconveniencing you too much. And you're not you're not inconveniencing me. And actually, since I'm most of my clients, I would say ninety eight percent of our our clients are somewhere in the world other than Israel. These are actually prime working hours for me. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. How did your working relationships with them changed in the pandemic? You must have been, I don't know how long you've lived over in Israel, but you must have been working virtually pre-pandemic. So I was working virtually pre-pandemic, but I was also traveling a lot. So the way I would explain it to people is there would never be a three-week period in which I wasn't making a transatlantic trip. So Flying a lot, and when I was flying, flying really long flights. Having done that for a stretch in my life as well, I know how tiring that is. Yeah, you know, it's exhausting, um, but it's one of those things where if you're in it, you don't necessarily feel the same kind of exhaustion. So uh, if you tell me I have to travel once every two weeks, you know, for a week at a time, and I just sort of keep that routine in place... You kind of go into autopilot with it and you're able to do it. Whereas I always find it more difficult to travel, you know, four times a year because my body just isn't accustomed to it. It's like the reverse of going to the gym where, you know, that's a really healthy habit. Flying those, those length of flights can be rough. But if you're in it, if you're part of that routine, somehow seems to have uh, less wear on the tires when you're in it. Yeah. Fair point. I don't travel as much post pandemic as I used to. And, and when I do travel, it is it is more it does feel like more tiring. But I track that I chalked that off to my age as opposed to anything else. Well, as, as the managing partner now, a chairman of of a huge firm, how often were you traveling? 
oh, two, three days every week, and mostly around the States, but increasingly as the firm became international to London, to Sydney, to Shanghai, to visit those offices, stay in touch. I mean, I, I had a belief that you needed to be physically, this is all pre-pandemic. I haven't, I've been chair emeritus now for a bunch of years, but back in the day, you know, I had a belief that you needed to be seen, you needed to be present, you needed to connect with the people around the firm and just phone alone wasn't enough. I think that's changed though uh, with, with the pandemic. I think the technology has advanced to the point where you and I are able to have a a good conversation from from Tel Aviv, and we're looking at each other. I know the podcast audience is hearing the audio, but we're seeing each other. And uh, you can connect differently now than you could back in the day. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I've said before that Zoom is not a replacement for in-person, but it is a much better version of a phone call. And I, and I say Zoom, I mean, you know, any any kind of any kind of video meeting, right? In other words, I used to do maybe 10 to 15 calls a week. I rarely have a call today. If I have a call, it's only because I can't be in the office. And I feel like being on Zoom, being you know live with another person, and I've got my computer at the ready so that we can actually work during those meetings, that, that's 10x productivity of what I used to get out of calls. Right? There's something about being on a phone call where you just feel like it, it's just it's much more limited. So I would say that overall, over the last you know two and a half, three years, ironically, quality of my client meetings has gone up drastically. Not just client meetings, really meetings with prospects, you know, legal tech companies I might be looking at. Everything has gotten significantly better. And while Zoom isn't a replacement for in, for in person, you know I, I still do find enough occasions now post pandemic to do in-persons when I really need to. But then it's because we really need to do it and we know why we're there in person and we get to take advantage of all that. It is interesting, isn't it? One of, one of the changes that people are much more strategic about when they're doing in-person meetings. It's not just getting on an airplane is no longer the default mechanism. It's let's do them when we need to do them, when they're adding something to the relationship. But otherwise we can do Zoom or WebEx or whatever your particular Teams or whatever your particular video format is. Yeah. And, you know, I, I listened uh, to a podcast on the Knowledge Project that was a, forgetting the person's name, but they had been a, an exec at, uh, at Ogilvy for years. And they had a really interesting, compelling story about why video meetings like Skype didn't take off in the early days. He said that it was not priced correctly. It was given away for free. And he said that misunderstood what a meeting is. Or, or, mis- or, or confused, conflated what a meeting is with the reason that someone goes to a meeting. He said, what a meeting is, is two people sitting and looking and talk, looking at each other and talking to each other. That Skype was able to recreate very effectively, you know, already 20 years ago. Why didn't it take off? His theory was it, because it was priced free, it missed what the point of a meeting is, right? The point of a meeting was you as a person, as a client, as a contact are so important to me that I will pay money and get on a plane to come to see you. Isn't that interesting? He says that as a result, Skype never really took off in the way that it should have. He said had they priced it differently and made it 
half the price of a ticket, then it would have been a good deal. And probably they could have given higher quality meetings than they were because they were trying to scale this for everyone. Now, again, what a subtle, nuanced point. And the founders of Skype, I'm sure, did really, really well, even if they didn't you know, understand this deep psychological nuance. But I'll tell you how I, like, what I do about that since I still do quite a few of my meetings on camera. You're sitting looking at me, and I think you can probably tell my background looks a little bit nicer than most backgrounds you see. And that's because I've got high-tech lighting in here. I have got the entire office is basically acting as a studio where I've soundproofed two of the walls. I have, you know, some some decent artwork here in the back. I want to give people an experience when they get on a Zoom with me. It feels like, wow, this person takes it really seriously. And, of course, I have every incentive to do that because I am quite far away. You know, so I want when they're thinking about, like, why would I work with this consultant as opposed to one that's stateside, I want them to feel when they come to my meetings, like, wow, this person takes this very seriously. So that makes complete sense. And you, you do seem to have a great setup. You started Killer Whale Strategies pre-pandemic. Yeah. First, tell our audience what Killer Whale Strategies is and what, and what you do. And then we can talk about the changes brought by the pandemic. Sure. So Killer Whale Strategies is a company that seeks to help our clients capitalize on legal disruption, right? So we help our clients do that. And our clients include big law firms, big four accounting firms, alternative legal service providers, Fortune 500 legal departments, anyone who sees what's currently going on in in technology's impact on legal and says, let's lean into that disruption. Let's be proactive rather than reactive. Let's figure out like how we can make this work for us. And we do that really in one of three ways. Number one, we scout companies. We very often are helping law firms and or legal departments identify which technology companies they should be working with. We really prioritize situations where we can help our clients see technology first, because if you can start working with technology companies early on, there's a lot of advantages. I like to put it, we mediate between David and Goliath, between the the small startups and the the huge companies that want to work with them. And the second thing we do is we produce a lot of content, right? So I've got a webinar that airs basically every other Wednesday that's sponsored by Axiom, a very active newsletter, very active Twitter account. We're launching a podcast this year. So we put out a lot of content. I publish essays on legal evolution. And that's all on the external side. We also do a ton of internal content, which is we help companies with their go-to-markets, with their pitch decks. We're doing a massive video project this year for a law firm. So a lot of that content is very often marketing content for their customers, but very often that content is internal, right? The case for legal tech, very, and you probably understand this better than anyone, needs to be made very often to management or to people at the firm. And it's not obvious, right? So a a lot of the positioning that we do is to sort of increase adoption internally. And then the third thing that we do is help with strategic decisions and investments, right? So we have helped public companies identify targets for acquisition, legal tech space. We've done that same role for law firms. And what makes us, I think, unique as an organization is we do these three things in tandem but we do them for ourselves as well, meaning we drink our own Kool-Aid. I scout companies because I want to write about them, but ultimately the things that I write about 
I'm going to use to make investment decisions. And we will invest our own money into startups when possible. And when we've been able in the past to get really top-notch venture capitalists to invest alongside us, such that now this is like a deal that a normal individual wouldn't really have access to. One of the things that we're able to get from startups because they're grateful to have worked with us because very often when we're bringing in VCs to a deal is we will syndicate an investment of strategic legal insiders who want to be a part of the deal. We did this last year in, in 2022 with a company called Term Scout that we invested with. We were able to get NFX, a pure Silicon Valley seed fund, to invest and lead the round alongside a group called Upfront VC. And after doing that, our group, which consisted of strategic insiders that saw the deal and said, hey, we understand this and we think we can help this company. We invested, we invested about half a million dollars in that deal as well. So what I would say about our business in general is the scouting and the research, the content, the investment, and ultimately our client network, all of these things have a kind of flywheel effect where being a better scout makes me a better writer, makes me a better investor. All of this together makes us you know, better consultants. Our opinions are out there, but we back them up with, uh, with our own cash. So when you say you scout, whether for clients or for your own particular investment, what are you looking for? Because the tech, the legal tech, you guys are focused on legal tech to the extent that term means anything these days. It's sort of amorphous, uh, but it covers a lot of you. You look at the charts about the number of legal tech startups and there's more than you can count. What are you looking for? Well, I'll give you my pre-November 30th, 2022 answer, and then I'll give you my, my post-chat GPT answer. Fair enough. Pre-November 30th, what I'm typically looking for are great founders, number one. There, there are certain instances where I really prefer the founder be a top-notch lawyer as well. Not every time, but I, but I like that. Great founders, great team, and a product that I can basically vet with my clients. Meaning my clients like to see things that I'm looking at early see if there potentially is some way that they can strategically invest. Now, that may not look like an equity investment. That may look like a form of partnership. But they appreciate that they're seeing these things as early on as possible. So very often, a startup will ask me, like, hey, are you looking at us as you're considering investing, or are you looking at this for your clients? And my answer is always both, right? I'm, I'm certainly interested in my clients saying this. I'm going to first vet it for them. If it looks interesting and compelling enough and, and they look at it and say, yes, this is something that I would buy, that feels then like I've, I've been able to prove it through our network. In a way, this makes like our diligence, like diligence is sort of a part of what we do. And very often when I'm investing alongside a VC, the VC is providing a kind of professional due diligence, but they may not be able, especially in legal where they don't necessarily have the network. I mean, a lot of VCs have network with like the chief uh, information security officer, but they may not have a relationship with the CLO or the GP or a managing partner at a law firm or even a practice partner. They can't necessarily vet these opportunities the way that we can just by doing our ordinary coursework. Again, we're focusing pre-chat GPT. Were there particular types of companies that was were particularly interesting to you or trend lines you're seeing, whether it's client collaboration companies or e-discovery or 
you know, you sort of go on and on and on in terms of the the buckets companies fell into. They were platform companies were were rarer at the time. I'll sort of look back and I'm looking at companies that we've been very excited about, but ne- but haven't necessarily invested in as well. But if I'm looking back at what really caught my eye, what really got me looking seriously are companies where I go, hmm, I haven't heard of anyone doing that, right? So great example, LegalMation. I invested in LegalMation in 2019. And when I saw what they were doing, which was using, they were generative AI before it even existed, using AI to respond to complaints, to respond to e-discovery requests, and taking work that just I assumed had to be done by an associate at the very least at a law firm. And they were automating that. And I just, I hadn't seen anyone else doing it. When I dug deeper, I met the founders. I understood these were like really experienced attorneys built this product. I understood why. It's like very, very difficult to build a product like this with with their know-how. So the mode is huge. Another interesting example of that is a company I invested in in 22, which was 10B5 a company that was automating the ability to draft SEC disclosures, particularly for, uh, for IPOs at the time, but they've taken on more use cases since. I just hadn't heard of anyone doing that. And then I found out John Kwan and Mohamed Tab built a company where these two associates at Cleary Gottlieb, who were looking at capital markets work and just saying, there has got to be a better way to do this, but we have to sort of build this as an attorney would. We have to build this from the sort of point of view of an attorney. Products like that are really, really hard to replicate. You got to actually you know, have some real legal expertise to build out that knowledge base. And then another company, as I mentioned TermScout before, TermScout is contract tech, but I had seen anyone in contract tech doing what they're doing, which is making it super easy for companies who are signing contracts to know if what they're signing is not marketed. And it was a very, very specific use case of how they applied it. So in each one of those instances, amazing founders. And in each one of those instances, I saw a company that was doing something that was just, wow, I've not seen anyone else doing that. And again, I'm not going to mention the companies that we looked at really seriously but didn't invest in, but they also sort of fall under that same kind of criteria, which is awesome company, awesome founders. But what I really appreciated was, wow, I haven't seen anybody doing this. I haven't even thought of this as a use case. How do you factor in, uh, again, we're going to get to the change wrought by ChatGPT here in just a second. Uh, But how would you factor in the the sales side of the market in legal is not not the easiest? How do you factor in? uh, I don't know if sales cycles are longer in legal than they are in other industries. They feel longer. How do you factor in that? component as you're assessing? Because ultimately, you're looking for companies that are going to make money and generate revenue and, and be profitable. How do you factor in the challenges of selling new technology into the industry, into your assessment? In the case of 10B5, they made that really easy for me because they were already working with some of the top firms that I imagined would be really hard to sell to. And they were already doing it. And that was a pretty big pretty big you know, clue for me that, wait, if you as a very early stage company are able to sell this product, then, then I like that. Now, I, I gave a talk earlier this year, both at ARC KM in Chicago and then at uh, Legal Innovators UK in London, where I explained how important it was 
for companies to understand that nobody really wants a user experience. You want tech that can just get something done for you. And the best situation is if you never have to learn how to use something new. Again, we're pre-chat GPT, which I think is an outlier in this respect. But as an example, with TermScout, one of the things that I looked at is they basically have produced this digital badge. When I come to sign IBM's SaaS contract today, I will see a TermScout badge on that contract, letting me know that this is the most favorable SaaS agreement. And I can click on the badge and it will take me to a page that says, it breaks down why this is super customer friendly and why this contract has no funny business in it. That is not something the lawyers have to use. That's not something that I as, I mean, no one is having to learn how to use Term Scout in order to make it work. And I think that that's a really big part is that attorneys look at their day and they say, man, if I'm going to be training on this at three o'clock in the morning, when I'm trying to close a massive deal, I'm just not sure I want this. I know a lot of times we say that like, you know, legal has these longer sales cycles. I've worked with companies who sell to insurance as well. I, I, we don't have the longest sales cycle. What I think we've had to date is not necessarily always the best products. Now, again, not that the product didn't work, but if someone is going to have to change a lot of their habits just to lo- learn to use your new interface. That's a problem. Maybe that's on you as a, as a startup and not necessarily on the law firm. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's move to chat GPT because there's a there's certainly been a lot of chatter about the impact ranging from it means nothing to it means everything and everything in between. I know you've been more on the line of this is an important development even before we get to uh, GPT 4.0. I had to be beat over the head with it. That's the truth. At first, my my partner, Avshi Shapira, who is at Avshi Shap on Twitter, and he's tweeting quite a bit about this as well. He showed this to me as soon as it came out and tried to explain that this is the most important thing that's happened since, you know, tech-wise, tech since Killer Whale Strategies, you know, got started. And at first, you know, I sort of, I made fun of him a little bit. I said, oh, you're being so breathless. You're buying into the hype. I've done this before. A lot of the same things you're hearing others say right now. So I had that reluctance. And I had seen some of the impact of GPT-3 when it first came out. So I wasn't necessarily on the coming at me with it. So finally, he got upset at me that I wasn't taking it seriously enough. So I went to ChatGPT. I made an account. I said, ChatGPT, I have insulted my partner, Avshi. He thinks that ChatGPT is the most important thing to happen to humanity in ages and I kept calling him breathless. I said, could you write him an apology? Sure enough, within a second, ChatGPT fired off. Perfect apology to, to Avshi. And I said, well, I have a good sense of humor. Avshi won't believe this is me writing unless it's got some humor in it. Maybe call him breathless in the apology anyway. And it rewrote the apology and then did that. And, and that was my, my, sort of my first moment where I said, holy cow, this is a different kind of creature. And here I was using some of the most powerful AI, and it was as, every bit as free as Twitter. Right now, I know they're going to start charging for it at some point, but we're talking about the first time that the masses, that everyone, and I include myself in that as well, is, is now being exposed to 
generative AI and large language models and the adoption. I mean, four days, a million, and for the first four days, they got a million users. That suggests to me that, that, yes, that this is categorically different. And yes, I think that GPT-4 is going to be an even bigger deal. But I, but I think that what we're seeing right now really should concern every single attorney because there is a version of an attorney's workflow that basically is I read documents, I analyze them, and then I produce other documents based on what I've read, right? So in the context of like a big M&A deal, I've read the agreements, I've identified some provisions that are going to be triggered by an M&A deal. I need to draft consents or side letters or reps and warranties based on what I read and what I analyzed. In the context of a litigation, I went through a huge number of documents. I've constructed a story based on those documents. I now need to create a list of deposition questions that will be relevant to, to these witnesses, right? So I'm, I'm reading, I'm analyzing, and then I'm responding with even more paper. If you break down what it is that ChatGPT is able to do, it's able to read, able to understand, and it's able to produce documents based on its analysis. This isn't like a search tool where I'm looking for a specific word and then based on the number of backlinks, I'm going to be shown the very best content that might lead me to an answer. What's different now is that the machine is able to read and analyze and understand. And to me, that is categorically different. And that is really behind what has plagued legal tech companies over the last 10 years is that they're ultimately relying on some form of glorified search. They've not been relying on AI that knows how to read and understand. And I think when you sort of internalize that, then you, you say, oh my goodness, like, so what's going to happen from here? And I, and I think that's, that, that's where I am right now, where I'm, I'm breathless myself because I'm, I'm looking at this and saying, this can really do a lot of what lawyers used to be able to do, and it's free. Yeah, as you say, it's not going to be free for long. Uh, somebody's going to monetize it without any question. But the other piece that's sort of remarkable, you, you hit on it when you're talking about drafting the apology, is the ability of the technology to communicate in a way that feels very human. It's not producing a list of links. It's not producing, you know, the, the, the Google search results. It's not producing some cut and paste terms that, that somebody else put in. It feels as if you're talking to a human being. And to me, that's a quantum difference in the technology. Huge. And, and yes, I, look, it, it is, you're, they're going to be monetizing this for sure. But at the same time, don't think that Amazon and Google, the other big tech companies, everyone is going to be competing in this space. Now, what I would say is just to use the comparison that seems to come to mind, if you've used chat GPT, the comparison that comes to mind is Google. Now, as you pointed out, this is not a search tool. It's like having a human that's fairly flexible right now. In other words, you can say, write a report as if you were a McKinsey consultant. So it's almost like having this like, you know, very flexible human being 
that may not be fully mature yet, but you can see where it's going. So in that respect, it's not like Google. But the reason I, I like the Google analogy is I think back to my days as an associate and the first partner review that I got, the senior partner spoke to me, gave me really good marks and then said, you know, one thing that did come up is some of the senior attorneys feel that you're a little bit quick to ask them for help when you probably could have done a little bit more research yourself. And he said, listen, not to worry. This is something that happens to a lot of young associates. But can I suggest that the next time you've got a question, before asking a partner, check Google. It's a lot of time, the answers turn up there. Now, why do I love this story? And why do I think it's instructive as far as chat GPT? Is that chat GPT has that same feeling of accessibility. And he was right. A lot of times I, 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 would make, I made that a part of my workflow. I shifted. I sort of got Google shamed, you know, and by an older person at the time, you know, who I was supposed to be young and tech savvy. And here he was giving me this advice. And I think that what's going to happen is you're going to have a similar kind of phenomenon, phenomenon going on at firms, at major businesses where someone says, you know, you could have just done this with chat GPT. Did you try that first? And I think I see that same kind of usage. So as opposed to like legal tech tools that have required, you know, you got to go through procurement, you got to go through all of these processes. ChatGPT doesn't, at the moment at least, doesn't require a a law firm subscription. I assume a lot lot of people are probably going to subscribe to it personally if it ends up having, I mean, for me, it's become within a month and a half, the primary tool I use for getting work done. I mean, sometimes using it to help me respond to an email where I want to keep my tone out of it, maybe insert it. I just, I found it extraordinarily useful in its earliest phases. So I, I can't even imagine where we're going from here. Absolutely. We started down this road by talking about how you scouted companies and sort of what your investment strategy was. And you drew a line between pre-chat GPT and post-chat GPT. So how has this had an impact on your analysis of the market and the strategies you deploy to, to scout and to find companies? Because it's, it's clearly had an impact. Yeah, well, I'll tell you this. It, it's confusing because you would say, well, just invest in companies with a chat GPT strategy or just invest in companies that are saying, hey, let's take that generative AI and let's fine-tune it for legal. And admittedly, OpenAI has already made an investment in a company called Harvey.ai. So this is happening. question is, is will any of these companies really be investable? And what I mean by that is because the access to chat GPT is as wide as it is, the barrier to entry to create companies that are just going to blow your mind is going to be very low. The question is, will any of these companies even need money to get started, right? Think about this, like, if you, as you go from, like, on-prem to cloud. On-prem to cloud led to a flurry of startups that were being built, and a lot of them AI companies that were building and saying, hey, we don't need to have our own servers anymore. All of that work, all of that investment, we didn't even need. But there still was an opportunity for... VCs to invest in a lot of these companies. With the generative AI revolution, we may get to a point where you don't even need to build your own AI anymore. You can just basically use other companies' models and fine-tune them. But will you even need investment? And because it's so easy to do, 
will we see a huge number of companies in the space where I don't want to say it creates a race to the bottom, but it'll certainly create a race to much lower pricing. So I think that there are going to be a lot of companies that are doing really interesting things in legal tech, but I don't know if all of them will be easy to invest in. And so in other words, like the best investment someone could have made in legal tech theoretically might be if you were an early investor in open AI. I don't know. So I think that's, that's what, that's where I would say there's an open question. I definitely think that companies will still be interesting, but if all they're doing is building their own AI, that could be a very, very tough sell. Um, You're certainly going to need just to answer those questions now, which is like, and I'm sure a lot of the companies that were perfecting wagon based technology had the same issue when the T model came out. Right. That's, That's a great analogy. But I think I think that's that's where that's where we may be heading. And as I, I see the, the, I think I got asked this question by Legal Tech News and Law Three Sixty and a few others. And what I've told them is, I think we're going to see AI adoption increase manyfold in twenty twenty three, but we may not see a matching rise in legal tech investment. Now, again, this is this is early. If I change my mind on this, you know, midway through the year. It's very possible because, you know, all this is new and fresh and we're trying to process all of it. But I, I don't know that the that it will be so easy to invest newer Gen AI companies. What's your prediction, recognizing that you have no more idea than anybody else does, of what 4.0 brings? I have to be careful how I answer this. I think that 4.0 is not necessarily going to make us forget chat GPT. But you're going to go, wow, that's even more specific, right? So someone who's looking at chat GPT right now and says, oh, I, I asked it to draft a demand letter. It didn't really, like, it, it did it okay. But I, as a trained attorney, can look at this. And I, I, I of course, see things that I would change about that. Very impressive that it drafted a demand letter or very impressive that it drafted a cease and desist or, but I would still probably change it a little bit. I think that with GPT-4, you're going to see less of that. You're going to see people saying there was really no difference between how I would have done this and how the machine did it. Now, the, the challenge, and my partner obviously has raised this on Twitter as well, is going to be compute. There is a lot of computing power required to run these tools. And I think that's going to be the big user challenge of 2023. But I think the actual tech itself, when people start start experimenting with it and start seeing how it works, I think it's going to shock some. It's going to be interesting to see, isn't it, as we, as we go down a, a new road in the world, world of tech. Zach, we, we've run out of time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation and listening to your insights. Thanks for making the time for us. Stephen, I really appreciate it. And great to meet you and uh, enjoy the conversation as well. Thank you. And uh, I'll, I'll have ChatGPT send you a thank you note. <laughs> please do. Please do. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.